This is exactly right. Forgive me for interrupting. I'm Bridger Weiniger, host of I Said No Gifts on Exactly Right. Each week, I invite my favorite people in comedy over to chat, and they always bring a gift. We're coming up on our 200th episode, and every episode is a gem. I have welcomed all kinds of great guests, including Cola Scola, Bowen Yang, Robbie Hoffman. It goes on and on and on. And you don't want to miss the 200th episode with the great Maria Bamford. What does she bring me? Find out April 25th. New episodes every Thursday. Follow I Said No Gifts wherever you get your podcasts. This story contains adult content and language, along with references to sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. Yes, your parents have told you not to go with strangers, but really, if you have someone who comes to you who's around the same age and who tells you that he has a bag of candy and why don't you go with him to the circus, you never expect the devil to be another child. I'm Kate Winkler-Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked, and the co-host of the podcast, Buried Bones on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. I've been fascinated with the story of Jesse Pomeroy in 1870s Boston for years. He's the boy who murdered kids for quite a while before he was caught. What does this story tell us about crime today? Author Roseanne Montillo talks about her book, The Wilderness of Ruin, A Tale of Madness, Fire, and the Hunt for America's Youngest Serial Killer. I think our audience, most of us have heard of Jesse Pomeroy. It's an infamous story. I know very little about it. I know the broad strokes, and that's it. So let's start with what do you think the themes are that you pulled out of this story that would resonate with an audience today? What's important about it? Well, you know, I actually hadn't heard about him when I first ran across him, even though I lived pretty close by, uh, just a few miles down the road from where he lived. And I think what really resonated with me, even though the story took place in the 1870s, how current it was. It was a story about a boy who committed crimes that could have been plucked out from today's newspapers and how my mother tried to shield him away from what people thought of him, a criminal, someone who needed to be thrown away in a prison and never allowed to be seen by others and never allowed to see the light of day and uh, how everybody thought of him a monster, but never really tried to study him to see why these things were happening. And um, everybody had an opinion, but nobody really knew what was happening, why he was committing these crimes. And the funny part, well, not really funny, but tragic, is that everybody had an opinion, but no one really knew what was happening. It's not like it is today. Nowadays, people have the opportunity to When something like this happens, you have the opportunity to go somewhere to have him studied by doctors, psychologists. As a parent, you have the opportunity to bring your child and see, you know, what makes someone a killer. Back in the day, 
Mrs. Pomeroy had no support whatsoever. She had no idea what was happening. She had no familial support. She had no doctors going to her. She had no idea if he was the only one around the country. She had nothing. So she really was kind of a blank slate. And um, so it was difficult for her as well. And there was no compassion for her. You know, there was nothing going on. They had never heard, people never heard about a child committing these sort of horrible crimes. It's a story that's old, but it's also, it's a story that's current. Well, let's, I guess, start with the family, with the Pomeroy family. Let's start from the beginning. What do we know about them that sort of builds to the profile of who Jesse Pomeroy was when all this starts? It was a fairly poor family. It was a dysfunctional family, as you could say. Uh, He came from a, a mother who was someone who didn't have a steady job, but she worked very hard, even though she didn't have anything concrete to show. She took in laundry. She did cleaning. She did as much as she could because her husband wasn't the type who worked all the time. He was an alcoholic. He was an abusive husband and an abusive father. Jesse also had an older brother, Charles. He was what you consider a good boy. He was the type who obeyed parents. He was good at school. He delivered newspapers. He also was born, Charles was born without any physical defects. Jesse, on the other hand, was not. Jesse had, right from the start, everything going against him. He had sort of what they called a glassy eye, and it wasn't really a glass eye. It was just an eye that, if you want to call it a sort of like a milky complexion. So he was always sort of bullied for that. He was also not the strongest kid. If you compare them to children his age, he was not the biggest kid in the group. That's why he liked to pick on children who were younger than him. Because normally, if you put him in a regular class, he was the one who was bullied because of what he looked like. And so he was bullied at school, but he was also bullied at home. His father, as soon as he was born, Jesse, and he looked different, his father came to believe that he was the son of the devil. So if you get bullied at school and if you get bullied at home from your own father very badly to the point where he was told often to go into his room and um, he was beaten very severely by his father with a belt, you know, stripped naked and beaten. The only thing I, I feel that you're going to know is violence. And so I don't think a lot of people, once the crimes started took that kind of a background into consideration. So we know the family background now. When do you think things change for Jesse? This starts everything in motion. Is there an event that happens? You know, I think when the violence that his father has on him, he starts his own violent behavior on animals. His mom had birds. The neighbors had birds. So which I have read enough to know that once you're starting your own violent behavior on animals, that's not a very good sign. And uh, so you start with that. So he wanted to try his own to see how other creatures react to your own violent behavior. I think it just escalated from there. He started hurting birds. He started hurting little animals. And so from there, I think he took pleasure in seeing how these creatures, helpless creatures, felt when he started violating them. The idea that he felt pleasure hurting animals and then slowly escalated from there. There was a murder 
nearby a violent one only when Jesse was only six or seven years old. The murderer for that crime was never found. And a lot of people have tried to pin it on him. Although, if that's the case, and and I looked into that, and while it does fit what he used to do, Mm-hmm. That would place him at a very young age, six or seven. I shudder to think that he actually started that early. I'm not sure if he really did that or not, even though it's close enough to his early hunting grounds. But I think he was a little bit older when he actually started that. He started right across the river where he used to live by starting with violating young boys. And you know, he was pretty... He was pretty crafty. One thing that a lot of people didn't believe, I think a lot of people have a hard time believing that children could elaborate and come up with plans to be so smart as, as to calculate, to say that Jesse was, you know, 11, 12 years old, even earlier than that, and say that he wanted to move from Charlestown and go across the river and go into Chelsea and find himself a boy and say, you know, there is... A circus nearby. Let's go and see it and then just attack a young boy. And could someone that young be calculating enough to do that sort of thing? And I don't think people want to credit someone with that kind of behavior, but I think it's plausible to do that. Do you know a lot about the victims? Like kind of getting into their lives, who is he targeting besides just young children? Is there anybody specifically we can talk about? We can start with a young boy early on because he had sort of an MO. I mean, he had a certain kind of child mm-hmm. that he went after. You know what I mean? He he didn't pick them at random. Mm-hmm. He had a look that he liked. Mm-hmm. He obviously didn't pick children who were older than him. Mm-hmm. He didn't pick children who were taller or bigger than him. Those he didn't approach because, well, he was being bullied by those who were older and bigger, so those wouldn't work out. Mm-hmm. And he also picked children who were well-loved, children who were cared for, mm. children who were pretty. So he was jealous. Yes, very jealous. Early on, he started by molesting several of them, a handful of them. Hmm. He didn't kill a couple of them right away. He started by molesting them. He started by getting sexual gratification from them. He started by torturing them, and then he moved on to really escalating into murder. And what he did to them would be stab them right in the eyes because he was especially jealous of them. So you knew that part of it was he knew he was never going to be as well-loved, as well-taken-care-of, as handsome, or as pretty as them. So he drew out the first boy by getting him to trust him. Is that right? Yes. He drew the first boy by telling them the usual line. He had candy. It's a line that you tell your children never to take candy from a stranger. But part of it was that this young boy, when you tell someone not to take candy from a stranger, you never expect the devil to be another child. The young boy was only like eight years old and the stranger were someone who was 10 years old. The eight-year-old is just a, a boy from a poor family. He's just playing outside as he does every afternoon. And he's been told not to go away with strangers. And here comes this boy who looks not too different than you are. And uh, and he tells you that, you know, that the circus is down the street. He's got a, a bag of candy. 
And even though the parents tell their children not to go away with strangers, when it's a child who comes at you with a bag of candy and he tells you that you can go and see the circus, why wouldn't you go? Parents don't usually warn children against other children. They tend to warn children against adults who might want to do harm to others. You know, at that time, children weren't known to be killers or to want to do harm to other children as well. Nobody really thought of Jesse or anyone else for that matter as someone who could go around and do harm to other children. So this little boy ended up going with Jesse and he wasn't killed. Jesse wasn't at that level yet, but he was hurt quite badly. And the only thing he could remember afterward was that he had a glass eye. But was he able to say that this was a child just a couple of years older than he who did this? Yeah, he described it as a child. But the thing was that Jesse was not from the area. He had walked there. So police looked around the area and there was no one that could describe. No one knew about a child with a glass eye, as he described it. Nobody was aware that there was this boy around the area. Jesse came from across the bridge. Jesse lived in um, Charleston. He lived in uh, on Bunker Hill Avenue. Although he was in the papers, people started talking. And it was then that his mother, Mrs. Pomeroy, decided, you know what? After a couple of times, this happened more than once, Jesse started moving around a little bit in the area. And the papers started kind of describing things. And Mrs. Pomeroy figured it out that they were talking about her son. Wow. So what did she do? She didn't go to the police. She didn't go to the the authorities. She didn't go to a teacher. She didn't go anywhere, which was, I mean, as a mother, what do you do? Do you protect your child or do you go to the authorities? Legally, you have some things to do, but morally, what do you do? Do you turn your son in? You know what the consequences are going to be. Mm-hmm. So you have a legal responsibility and a moral responsibility. Which one do you choose? Well, She could have stopped it right there. That's why a lot of people ended up being very angry with her. People are angry with her because she could have stopped the killings that happened afterward, as well as several abusive situations that happened even afterward. Instead, she packed up and she moved to South Boston, believing that the abuse would stop. Instead, what happened was that she just moved the abuse from one place to the next Jesse didn't change. The location changed. Do we have any idea how many children he attacked before she made this discovery or the newspapers starting to put the dots together and then they moved to South Boston? Three. There were three that he attacked for sure. There were two that died prior to that, as I mentioned. This would have been when he was really, really young. Mm-hmm. He would have been six or seven. So I'm not quite sure about those. And they're in a city a little further out. So he would have had to travel a somewhat bigger distance, a much longer distance. And it gives me a little bit of a pause to that because he was young. Yeah. You never know. You don't know. And when you were saying that, I just looked up really quickly to remember, you know, the six-year-old who shot his teacher and, you know, the mother was in trouble with the law because of it, you know, this this gun that he had access to. And he stated clearly from what I remember, I'm planning to shoot my teacher. So that is different than what Jesse Pomeroy did, but it would not have occurred to me 
until that story came out, you know, in 2023 that this had happened. So Ruth Ann Pomeroy says, let's move. Is the husband still in the picture? No, they divorced. She was pretty audacious for the time because divorce was not something that was very common back then. Mm-hmm. You know, she took a risk and um, she divorced the husband. She thought better be divorced than married to someone who will kill her. Right. He was an abusive husband. He beat up his children pretty badly. He was a drunken. So, I mean, many of the choices she made were a little iffy. But given the time and the opportunities that she had, she also didn't have much of a support system. Mm-hmm. Didn't have any family. She didn't have people at the son's school were not with her. Parishioners were not supporting her. She was alone. Well, tell me about the stakes here. If she had turned him in and said, I think he's a suspect, what were the facilities like for a boy? I know this is unprecedented. I mean, that's part of this story. What what would they have done with him? Well, reform school was an option. He was a child. You know what I mean? He was a child. So there were plenty of reform school where he could have been sent. And there were facilities for children where he would not have been coddled that's for sure. You know, these were not places where you where you think you'd go and watch TV because these things didn't exist back then. So he would have been made to work. So he would have been made to attend meetings with doctors. He would have been studied. That's for sure. He would have had to attend meetings. He would have been punished. But there is also the possibilities that he would have enjoyed some of those punishments because they came to a point where the punishments that his father was given him turned out to be pleasurable for him. So, you know, he there was a, a time where certain punishments that he received from adults turned out to be almost pleasant for him. He did attend reform school for a while. He was in reform school because they did arrest him. They did figure out After the last abuse that he inflicted on a child, they eventually figured out who he was. He liked to walk along the beaches because he knew that there were children there who were playing. And he ended up abusing one of the children that he found in one of those spots who were by themselves. And the child was able to identify him. Wow. And he was arrested and sent to reform school against, you know, his mother's wishes. He was in there for almost two years. His mother wasn't happy about that. It made sure that he came out after two years. And, you know, he didn't mind it. That's the whole thing. Jesse didn't particularly mind being in reform school because when he came out, he actually wasn't reformed. He turned out to be worse than the time that he went in. Hmm. He came out more vengeful. He came out more disturbed. He came out more intent on doing harm. Reform school didn't work for him. His mother, after a while, was able to get him out because she had an affair with a police officer. His mother was just as crafty as he was, you know, was a quid pro quo kind of a, you know, and um, she worked her wiles and he worked his. So she came, he came out and uh, let's just say the reform school didn't work. Like I said, he had time to learn skills. And Stu, he was mad. He, He was very mad because, well, before... What he did was abuse the kids. Once he came out, he moved. His deeds escalated. And if before the kids managed to get away from him, once he came out, those kids had no chance Wow! at all. He wasn't going to let anyone get away with anything. There weren't going to be any witnesses to what he was going to do. 
So if we remove the two children who died, who you suspect because of Jesse's age, he would have been six or so, because of the geographic location, it was too far flung for him. If we remove those two boys, he hasn't killed anybody before the reform school. It's only when he's released. Yes. Okay, so that was sort of his trigger, his inciting incident. I think so. I think he had time to kind of finesse, if you want to call it that. He had time to think about things. He had plenty of time to sort of sharpen his skills as well. There were plenty of boys that he tried his hands on. He spent a lot of time in solitary confinement as well because of lots of things that he tried on other boys while he was in the reform school. While he didn't spend most of his time in solitary confinement, when he was together with other boys, he was with kids who were, I don't want to say the worst of the worst, but, you know, these were kids who were just like him. And so he managed to learn things. He also became very much aware of how he was seen. And so if they were going to call him, if they were going to abuse him, if they thought that he was mean, he was going to be the best of the worst. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You thought he was bad when he went in? Well, you hadn't seen nothing yet. If you're like me, you're always looking for a story to dive into. Whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve, the key to getting hooked is the details. I need rich visuals and intricate storylines. And June's Journey has all of that and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young woman, on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murder. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. There are twists, turns, and catchy tunes, all leading you deeper into the thrilling storyline. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the detective club. There, you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Well, let's tell the story now chronologically. He's released from reform school and he's 12 at this point. A little bit older. He's 13 and a half. Okay. He's released to his mom's care. Is she still in South Boston? She is. She had opened up a little shop where she sold newspapers. And her son, Charles, is a little bit older. He's still the good, the good son, you want to call it that. He goes out and delivers paper. So Jesse, Jesse works for them. You know, he goes out, they sell newspapers. They sell pens, notebooks, and so people go there. And so the first person who comes across, Jesse has grown a little bit now. He not only looks a little weird, but he has grown taller. He has grown a little bulkier. And the first person that he kills is a little girl named Katie Curran. She's a little girl from the neighborhood. She goes out in the morning one day before she goes to school. She tells her mom that she's going to buy a notebook for school. She's supposed to meet Charles, who usually tends to the shop. 
But this morning, he has gone out to deliver the newspapers, and they've decided to let Jesse stay in the shop hmm. because now, you know, he's a good boy. He's been reformed. And Katie, instead of meeting Charles, she meets Jesse, who tells her that the notebooks are downstairs in the basement, and, and uh, she should go down and pick one out. You know, whatever she wants, she's able to go down and pick one herself. Well, she goes down, picks one out for herself, and she never comes out. He buries her in the basement. The basement is, uh, I don't know if you've ever been to South Boston, but it's one of these triple deckers that um, the basements are made of stone and dirt. And uh, it's not one of these places that you likely go or keep anything. And it's really just a dirty place that uh, nobody really goes. And uh, there weren't any notebooks or newspapers or anything. And Jesse just killed her and uh, buried her under a pile of... uh, dirt, cement, stones, and left her there. The whole neighborhood started looking for her where she possibly could have gone because, well, she was a good girl and uh, her parents were divorced. So automatically, they believed that maybe her dad could have kidnapped her and brought her somewhere else, moved her to Maine. You know, the police really didn't take the whole thing seriously. They felt that maybe she had been kidnapped, even though Jesse was there. I mean, Jesse had just come out of reform school. You would think that maybe someone um, would have imagined that there was something slightly suspicious about that. You know, Jesse had just come out and you have a little girl missing. Mm-hmm. Bells should have just gone off right there. Nobody thought of that. The investigation, that little that was done, automatically placed her in the kidnapped area. Her mom was very desperate to say that, you know, as much as my husband is a creep, I don't think he would have done that to her. Until several weeks, months later, there was another murder right on the beach. A little boy, Jesse, was walking on the sidewalk, and there was a little boy who wanted, he was four years old, cute little boy, cute as a button. Again, he got jealous because Horace, that was his name, was an adorable, blonde, blue-eyed little boy who told his parents that he could go out and buy some candy. He wanted to feel like a a big boy and wanted to walk down two doors to buy candy. Jesse saw him, led him down to the beach, and killed him, stabbing him right in the eye. You know, right in the eye, you know what I said, that Jesse had that milky eye? Yeah, he felt jealous and stabbed him right in the eye and left him right on the beach. And then he set fire to him. So... Really, it was a horrendous crime. And um, hours later, a couple of um, people who had gone to the beach to fish found him. And then, you know, they felt this time around, the police had a feeling that Jesse had done it. This time around, suspicion immediately was on him. And they arrested him. So it's interesting that with Katie, he conceals her so well. He buries her What do you think motivated him with Horace to literally display him on a public beach so someone was obviously going to find him? What do you think happened in between? It's funny because Katie is the only girl. All the other ones were boys. And Katie, I think, was a crime of opportunity. She sort of um, went to him. So I'm not sure if this was kind of a spur of the moment thing. Mm -hmm. You know, she just happened to be there. He just happened to be there as well. She just arrived 
Yeah. I mean, and also her family knew where she was going. So, yeah, you're right. He would have he would have had to have covered that up because these other kids he sort of drew out and they were out and it could have been anybody who had done it. But with Katie, it would have been immediate suspicion. Okay, so he is a a big suspect and they arrest him and he's 13 at the time. He's older than that by now. He's about 14 or so. Yeah, he's I mean, and now what do you do with him? You know, he's a 14-year-old boy who's committed. And Katie, not long thereafter, Mrs. Pomeroy sells the building. And the man who buys it starts to dig in the basement because there is kind of a smell coming. Mm. What do they find? Katie's body. So they know that he's committed this crime as well. Do you think Mrs. Pomeroy ever suspected that after his release from the reform school that something was happening? Do you think she sensed Anything like, whoa, my kid is not any better. He's worse. Yeah, I do. She had to know early on. You just don't go home and find these twisted birds in in your cage and think to yourself, hey, my child just happened to be playing with these birds that I've cared for, you know, for so long. And suddenly he strangles them and there is nothing wrong with this child of mine. You know what I mean? She had to have known early on when she decided to move that it was him who was doing these things. Otherwise, you wouldn't just pick up and move your whole family somewhere else. She had to have known all along. That's why people were very upset with her that she didn't do something about it. I mean, I don't know. What would you do in a situation like that? Do what you feel it's morally right, it's legally right? Uh, what do you do with a child that is yours and is committing such devious crimes? Especially against children. Yes. I mean, when do you stop being a mother and start being a citizen worried about other people? You know what I mean? She, Mm -hmm. where do you turn for help? People hate you. You don't have a husband. You don't have a community. You don't have support system. You don't have a family. Uh, Where do you go for help? You certainly can't turn to the internet. Mm -hmm. There is no Google search engines. Uh, Where do you go? Well, let's turn to his arrest. He's arrested. What do the police in Boston say we should do with this kid? Because this was unprecedented for them. It was. And on his trial, he was convicted. And a lot of people wanted him to die in the middle of Boston Common. I mean, keep in mind that this is the 1870s. Mm-hmm. Boston wasn't kidding around. He was put on trial. He was sentenced to die. And at the time, do you want to put a teenager on the gallows to die in the middle of Boston Common? If this were your child, would you want to see him die just like that? Do you want to be known as the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, the first state that put a child? Because keep in mind that as horrible as these crimes are, they were committed by a child under the age of 15. Mm -hmm. Do you want to be known as that state who does that? On the other hand, what do you do with him? Well, during the trial, did Jesse admit to anything? What Did he have a defense whatsoever? No, the only thing he did was go to court and laugh. The only thing, he was smirking, he was playing, he played with his buttons. He was just there. He didn't admit to anything. He just listened to what people had to say. And doctors said that he was a psychopath, that he was sick. It wasn't like people weren't studying the human brain. It wasn't as if, you know, there weren't studies done on criminals. The only difference was that the criminals were older. Mm -hmm. People who died in London, people were hung all the time. Mm -hmm. They were all older people compared to him. Children had never really committed this sort of thing. He was such an unusual case. 
Still, he was sentenced to die. And the governor at the time just didn't have it in his heart to do that. So he was on that road for two years until his sentence was commuted to life in prison. Hmm. I'm not sure there was the better choice, though, in solitary confinement. So it's not just like he went to prison where he stayed for 53 years. He was also in solitary confinement for 53 years. So, I mean, you don't place him to hang, but at the same time, solitary confinement for someone. I mean, by the time he went to prison, he was 16 years old. You have a 16-year-old who's going to go to prison for life. Not only that, he's going to be in solitary confinement for the rest of his days. Can you imagine that as well? I'm not sure that that sentence is any better than having him die. So a lot of people were aggravated by that. Uh, which is better, to make him die or to leave him in solitary confinement for the rest of his days? Did he write? Did he leave behind any kind of writing or anything like that? He did. He was a very good writer. He read tons of books because eventually there were two jail cells that he got. He wrote books. He wrote biographies. He wrote an entire biography. And so he didn't think that it was appropriate for him to be in solitary confinement, of course. He wanted to look outside. He wanted an entire pardon, of course. You know, he wanted to be pardoned because he said that as he got older, he got better. And he said that the crimes that he committed as a child were the crimes of a child. The person he became as an adult had nothing to do with what he had done as a child. Hmm. I actually don't believe that because he was a crafty old guy. He tried to escape and he did very well. You know, he managed to get out of his cell many, many times. His warden said that he was a real pain in the ass because he managed to escape from his cells at least a half a dozen times. One time, he actually had almost made it out until a cat gave him away. <laughs> a cat that he had in his cell got spooked by a noise that he made, and I woke the warden, and so he was caught. He never made it outside of the walls of the prison. And you think to yourself, what could you possibly do now? Where are you going? He was never pardoned. He went before the pardon committee several times. He was never given a pardon. Hmm. At the end of his life, when he was almost 70, he was transferred to a hospital because he got sick, but he wasn't happy with that. He just wanted to get out. He wanted to get out, but by then it was too late. Did his brother Charles or his mother, Ruth Ann, come to visit him ever? Or was that even allowed? His mother, his, you got to give it to her. His mother used to bring him little files and little things to try and help him to get out. Oh, gosh, Ruth Ann. Up until she died herself, she used to help him. You know, she used to bring him food all the time. And in that food package, she used to have little knives. That really didn't endear her to other people as well. Yeah. It's kind of like, you know what he has done? What do you expect that he's going to do once he gets out? You know, do you really think he's going to change? I actually thought that the time that he had in there, you know, didn't mellow him at all. Because if anything, if the reform school when he was a youngster was any indication, time in solitary confinement, now that he was an adult, was only going to make him angrier hmm. and a lot more kind of resentful. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I mean, he was a he was growing behind solitary confinement. Can you imagine what that does to a person to kind of embitter him even more? And she was trying to help him to escape. What were her expectations? That he was going to mellow out and go really to Maine and become a farmer and grow tomatoes? 
Do you think that Ruth Ann blamed herself and, of course, her husband for all of this? Or did you think that it was nature, not nurture, from her point of view of what made Jesse Pomeroy like this? I don't think she blamed herself. If anything, I think she felt that she had tried to help him. Hmm. But I do think she blamed her husband. She blamed the teachers. She blamed the students. She blamed everybody else but herself. Hmm. I don't think she saw herself as having moved houses as an indication that maybe she could have stopped things. If anything, she tried to help her son. Hmm. No, I don't think she saw it as the at fault at all. No, but her husband would have would have been at fault, of course. How did ultimately his life end Jesse Pomeroy after all of this? He lived to a very old age. Yes, I mean, in 1929, he was moved. He finally left the state prison, and he was given a reprieve to go to the Bridgewater State Hospital Mm -hmm. because he was getting up there in age and he wasn't feeling very well. He was given a place where he could be a little bit more, I wouldn't say free, but have a little bit more freedom to roam around, to commune with other people, to be taken care of. But he wasn't very happy because, believe it or not, in the state prison, he had his own two rooms with his uh, his books, his pens and things like that. At the infirmary now, he was going to be taken care of. He could roam around the area outside. He, he could make new friends. Still wasn't happy. He still wanted to have total freedom to move around Mm -hmm. like he wanted. Even though he died at a pretty good age, when he got out to go to the state infirmary, he was 68. For all intents and purposes, he wasn't old, old. Mm -hmm. He still felt that he could have had a few good years left. And he wanted to spend those years on his own. He didn't want to be supervised in any way, shape, or form. (laughs) He wanted to move. He wanted to have a farm, he said. He wanted to become a farmer. He wanted to grow things. I mean, was it true? That's what he said. But he said a lot of things throughout his life. Didn't necessarily mean that those were true. God only knows what he really wanted to do. He was still in fairly decent health. I mean, when he was younger, he could tell children that he was just a boy that could go away together. Now, he was an older man. Mm -hmm. Uh, Would you trust an older man? Was his instinct to kill or to abuse children still there? I don't know. Maybe. Probably, yes. I would guess. Probably, yes. Yeah. Okay. So what is, at the end of this, his life, what do you think is the thing that we can learn the most from the story of Jesse Pomeroy and the tragedy of a young boy who you said was very intelligent, but something was definitely wrong, whether it was nature, nurture, both, Something happened, and he turned into a monster who probably was unlikely reformed. What do you think the lesson for us is? The lesson for me was never take people for granted. I mean, never underestimate children if you think that there is a problem there. I think a lot of people underestimated how intelligent and conniving he was Hmm. because even his own mother, and I think at the time— People were having a difficult time believing that a child was committing the crimes that he was doing. Mm-hmm. And I think there was a huge mistake on their part. People didn't believe that someone so young could be so kind of, that's not to say that children have the capacity, you know what I mean, to do horrible things, but it doesn't hurt to, you know, if you see a problem to just take care of it 
and try and nip it in the bud early on. You mentioned that 60-year-old boy. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yes, yeah, seek help if you think that help is needed. Also, if you think that there is a problem, community. Mrs. Pomeroy didn't have anybody to rely on. Mm-hmm. And for me, there was a huge, huge red flag. She was by herself. She didn't have anybody to seek out help from. And I think help is important. Also, the idea that you don't really know whether it is nurture or nature. I've tried to, all of my books deal with that kind of a situation. You know, uh, my first book was about Frankenstein, whether it was nurturing or nature that made out the creature. And I'm still seeking out those questions. Are we who we are because of nature or nurturing? And even in Jesse Pomeroy, we don't really know, Hmm. you know, was it because he was born that way or because he was made that way? He had a brother. Charles turned out to be quite fine. He lived in the same environment. Hmm. He also came out from a situation from a dysfunctional family. Still, he married. He had children. He may not have been rich, but he still had a fairly decent life. Granted, he was not picked on. Hmm. He was not bullied. He was not hurt by his father. So is that what made Jesse who he was? Who knows? If you love historical true crime stories, check out the audio versions of my books, The Ghost Club, All That Is Wicked, and American Sherlock. This has been an Exactly Right production. Our senior producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our associate producer is Christina Chamberlain. Our mixing engineer is Ben Talladay. Curtis Heath is our composer. Artwork by Nick Toga. Executive produced by Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.